Well, again, my name is Marshall, and I'll be teaching on the passage. And uh, I need the prayer, so let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at uh, this passage. God, we come before a text that is, it is just so rich. There's so much that could be said here. And so that I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice, including my own, that we hear something from Simeon today, that we would learn something of Christmas and of your son, born of a virgin, born in a manger. God, on this third Sunday of Advent, would you meet us by your presence and power in this evocative and powerful story, the story of Simeon. Be with us, Lord Christ, for your name's sake we pray. Amen. I wonder what, what are you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Our middle school director, Paul Moen, and his fiancée, Caitlin, they're waiting to get married next month. What are you waiting for? Some of you are waiting for your children to get married or to finally have grandbabies. Feels like you've been waiting an eternity. Some of you are waiting for a child to be born, to enter your house and your life. Others of you are waiting for children to leave your house, finally. Some of you are waiting to graduate. Some of you are looking and waiting for a new job, a first job. Some of us are waiting for the Bears to again win a Super Bowl. We're all waiting. We are all waiting for something. What are you waiting for? And what you're waiting for, what you're waiting for actually tells a lot about what matters to you. And as you wait and how you wait, it actually, it actually shapes you. How you wait and what you wait for, it shapes who you are. So what are you waiting for? Well, today is the third Sunday in Advent. Advent means coming. And through the series of Advent, we have been in a sermon series. We called it Jesus, or excuse me, Christmas Playlist. And it's the songs of Luke from Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. We've looked at the song of Mary. We've looked at the song of Zechariah. Today we look at the song of Simeon. Next, uh, next week on Christmas Eve night, we will look at the song of the angels and the shepherds. But today... The Song of Simeon, the Song of Simeon. If, uh, you might have heard the Nunc Dimittis. All these songs have, are known by their first names in Latin, and it means now depart, the Nunc Dimittis, the first words from Simeon's song. Because today we meet Simeon, and also in the subsequent story, which Melissa read, it's a woman we won't look at named Anna. But both Simeon and Anna have been waiting for something for most of their lives. They have been waiting for something. Look with me at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting. Now, that's an odd phrase, consolation of Israel. That's not the way we normally talk. There's all kinds of echoes in those words of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, specifically the book of Isaiah, the consolation of Israel. The consolation has the sense of rescue, of comfort, ultimately of hope. So when it says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, it's really a shorthand for salvation. When heaven will come to earth, when God will be among us. It includes so much the forgiveness of sins belonging to the people of God. 
The Bible says Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for salvation, waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to show up in real and meaningful ways. And let me just say in passing real quick, both Simeon and Anna, their waiting made them great. They were weighty people. But whenever I think of Simeon, for some reason, and maybe because it's, I've told this story in association with Simeon before, whenever I think of Simeon, I think of a man I met once and only once. It's a story I've told before, but it's so good it deserves retelling. When people are getting to know me, I'm a pastor, and you know, eventually in the conversation it comes up, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? And I just tell them simply, well, I am a pastor. And people have several responses when they hear, I am a pastor. One is they shut down like a clam, boom. Like they just like, they were talking to me like, no, they're done. Other people just open up and they just spill that. We were talking about football and all of a sudden they're spilling their guts about their marriage or whatever. They just open up. Sometimes they remember they just told a dirty joke and they apologize. But one of the more interesting responses is they say, I'm an old pastor. They're like, oh, I know another pastor. You guys should meet. Like I'm an exotic animal, you know, like I know another guy with a mohawk, you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's like, okay. But I was living in the South in Alabama, have some friends from Alabama in the room this morning. And uh, this friend of mine finds out that I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, he, he's not from a Christian tradition. He's like, oh, you got to meet my other friend who's a pastor. I was like, oh, okay. And so he arranges a meeting. I'm like 29 years old. I'm a freshly minted pastor. And he sets this meeting up, it's random, the details don't matter, but it was in a parking lot, okay? And so I'm there first, and the other car pulls up. And it is a jet black Lincoln Town Car with windows, you know, dark tinted windows. And the vanity plate, I'll never forget the vanity plate on the back of the car. It said, Holy Go, as in Holy Ghost. <laughs> and uh, the man unfolds himself from the car. He's a very large man. At the time, his son was a defensive lineman for the University of Alabama, and he was his father. This was a large man. And when he saw me, this holy man from the Holy Go car, he breaks into this big smile, and he comes towards me. Now, I'm not Hulk Hogan, but I'm not small. I'm six foot two, 200, uh, 200 pounds, right? But this man is enormous. And he literally comes, thankfully he had a smile on his face, but he comes towards me and he puts his hands on my shoulders. Like, I'm a grown man. He puts his hands on my shoulders, and I think he's going to, you know, like a rag doll, just shake me. But he, said, he looks me in the eye, he actually looks me up and down, he says, I can tell you are filled up with the Holy Spirit. I can see it all over you. And then the punchline, I bet you can shuck some corn. <laughs> okay. Now, I've always loved that story, and for some reason, it always makes me think of Simeon. Now, why is that? I think it's because there's a godly confidence in that man and in Simeon, an older man who is filled with both hope and joy. But it wasn't until this morning, when I was thinking about how do I introduce this sermon, that I thought about the power of the metaphor, shucking corn. Think about it, shucking corn. What do you do when you shuck corn? You literally pull husks back so that you may see the kernels, the life-giving kernels of corn. There's no nutrition in the husks. They hide the kernels. you got to shuck the corn to get the kernels. And in this passage, Simeon is shucking some corn for us. Specifically, he is shucking some Christmas corn. 
He is helping us to see into the heart of Christmas, into a hidden Christmas. Realize that as we see him here in this passage, he is one of the first people to meet Jesus after he's been born. He's one of the first people to experience God's Messiah in the flesh. Now on the surface, the husk, if you will, what he's encountering is a peasant baby with teenage parents. When he comes into the temple that day, that's what he experiences, a peasant baby with teenage parents. But that's the husk. But he pulls the husk back to show us, and Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, to show us the kernels. Now, I actually think I could do a whole sermon series on Simeon. I have like eight things I want to say. I'm going to reduce it to three. And the first kernel, the first kernel that Simeon shows us is that this whole thing, this whole thing of Jesus is all according to God's good and ancient plan. It's all part of God's good and ancient plan. You see, the story, the story that is told here is part of something that is much larger than this story. And it reaches all the way back to the beginning of redemptive history. Look with me if you have your Bibles open. Actually, I'm going to go a few verses before uh, what Mel read. And just listen to some of these phrases, though. In verse 21, it says that Jesus was named as the angel commanded. In verse 21, it also says he was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. Verse 22, Mary, Mary purifies herself according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, Jesus is presented at the temple, quote, as it is written in the law of Moses. Verse 24, they offer sacrifices according, quote, to what is said in the law of the Lord. And then in verse 27, they bring him into the temple courts according to the custom of the law. The writer Luke is going out of his way to say that this story is in conformity in continuity with everything that has happened in the past. This goes all the way back to at least Genesis 12, if not before. Genesis 12, God said that through the descendant of Abraham, and Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, through the descendants of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Which is to say that God is working within the history of Israel to bring about the salvation of the world. Now, it's hugely significant that all of this takes place in the temple. It's usually seen, all this takes place at and in the temple. Now, fun exercise, I wonder how you would answer. If you were to describe what is the geographic uh, place that feels like the center of the universe, of, of, of the world, of our earth, what is the center of the world? I don't know. For me, I, when I think of that, the first thing that comes to my mind, tell me afterwards what your image is. For me, it's the clock tower kiosk in the center of the Great Hall in Grand Central Station in New York City. Before payphones, you actually may have met someone there. You know, meet me in New York at the tower right there in the middle of the Great Hall. You've seen it in movies, if not in person. The clock tower kiosk in the center of the Great Hall in Grand Central Station in the greatest city right beside Chicago, New York City, right? Now, I don't know if that's the right place or not. But I do know this, that that place in ancient Israel, the center of the universe, was the ancient temple. Not only was it physically the largest structure for hundreds of miles, the temple represented all the hopes and dreams of the Jewish people. Because the temple was the place where heaven came down to earth. The temple is the place where heaven came down to earth. Now stay with me for just a few minutes because I'm going I'm to go deep for a second theologically. But this is so important to understand this. To see this plan, you have to go all the way back to the very first pages of Scripture to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now John Walton and other scholars have shown for us, and I don't have time to, to, to unpack it, but how the Garden of Eden 
The Garden of Eden, the very first garden in the Bible, is laid out like a temple. The, te- the garden is laid out like a temple. And what happens in that garden, which is to say what happens in a temple, that God's presence is with God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people under God, with God's presence in God's place under God's rule. And it's interesting, in the Garden of Eden, the command to our first parents was to go forth to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the whole earth. Which is to say, the call of our first parents, and actually for you and me, is to take the presence of God into the whole world. To occupy the world with God's presence. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by Genesis 3, which is this fall into sin and things kind of get off track. So what happens is, is that God... He closes down the garden. So this place that was meant to be the wellspring from which God's presence was to go forth into all the earth, the garden is shut down. That is Genesis chapter 3. But there is and was still a place for God's presence, and that was the temple. And at the time of Jesus' birth, God's foothold for his presence, where heaven came to earth, was the temple. This place. This is where God's presence dwelt, especially in the Holy of Holies, God's special presence. So it's significant that Jesus' parents brought him to the temple for all the rites and for purification we just talked about. And it's at the temple that Simeon takes this baby into his arms. Because as the rest of Jesus' ministry will make very clear, the temple is very important to Jesus. I mean, we'll see next week uh, on the morning service, when Jesus was a little boy, he stays in the temple to learn. When he was a grown man, Jesus, he will go to the temple and find that it's been turned into a marketplace. And so he makes a cord of whips and clears out the temple like he owned the place. He literally starts throwing the furniture over like he owns the place. But not only does he act like he owns the temple, he actually acts like and speaks like he is the temple. I mean, he talks about the temple in some weird ways. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. I mean, nobody talks like that. First of all, he's comparing himself to a building. It's like, I'm greater than this building. But then he also said stuff like, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And it's not just the way he talks about it. It's actually what happens within the temple. Weird stuff happens to the temple. When Jesus dies, at the moment of Jesus' death, the Gospels tell us that the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the civilization was torn in two. He dies, it goes dark, the temple is torn in two. The temple curtain is torn in two. Jesus talks and acts like he owns the temple and that the temple points to him. That in fact, Jesus is saying the way to understand me is to understand the temple. John Ordberg says it this way, Jesus talks and acts as if the whole idea of the temple was to point to him. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the successor of the temple. So when Simeon is standing in the temple courts holding a baby in the temple courts, that is the plan. The temple where God dwells has and will become Jesus. You see, the ancient temple pointed forward to what Jesus was come to do which is to bring heaven to earth, which is to bring God to us. Because in Jesus, heaven has come to earth. Because Jesus' presence is the presence of heaven and of God himself. Because not only did the earthly temple point to Jesus, see, if you believe in Jesus, if you abide in him, God's presence is within you because Jesus. 
The temple has been torn in two. The curtain has been torn in two because heaven has come to earth. Which is to say, which is to say you don't have to go to the temple anymore. Today, right now, you can have a living relationship with the God of the universe. A relationship, a vivid relationship. His presence where you can talk to him and listen to him and feel his presence. That is what Christmas begins to signify. And it happens here in the temple according to God's plan. So that's the first kernel, that this has been a plan for all of time, that God would come and make heaven come into our hearts for those who would have him. But the second kernel, and I couldn't come up with a good way of saying it, salvation has come, that's kind of lame. Um, More poetically, perhaps, the second kernel is this, the hopes and fears of all the years, the hopes and fears of all human hearts are met in Jesus. The second kernel is that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus. Verse 27 It indicates that the Holy Spirit prompts this guy, Simeon, to go to the temple courts. And when he gets there, what does he encounter? A teenage mother and a young carpenter from Galilee. Peasants, not impressive in any way, and they are holding a baby. And instinctively, he begins to sing. Verse 28, he took the baby in his arms and blessed God. Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. Stop just there. He is looking at a baby saying, I have seen your salvation, God, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation of the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. There's so much here. I mean, salvation is for all people, not just the Jews, but also, there's also this, the hopes and dreams of all the years because God has humbled himself. The scandal And the greatness both of Christianity and of Christmas is that God has become one of us. (laughs) That God is in a manger. The very God who created all things is in a manger. One preacher named Neville Figgis, that's really his name. One preacher named Neville Figgis said it this way. God is great is the cry of Islam. But that is a truth which needed no no supernatural being to teach. That God is little. (laughs) That is the truth which Jesus taught. I mean, think about it. The God who created all things, who spoke, I don't care how it happened, but he spoke creation into existence. He imagined the cosmos. He slung the scars into space. He created supernovas and rhinoceros. He dreamt up belly buttons and fireflies. This God, that God who did all of that, he became a helpless baby who needed his diaper change and to be fed by his mother. And in that is our salvation. God became one of us. He left the heights of heaven and took on human flesh into our brokenness. And when Simeon's holding him, he says, my eyes have seen the salvation. He's holding a baby who probably has a dirty diaper. Seriously. And why? Why? Because God must come near must take on our flesh, flesh like yours, flesh like mine, in order to heal us, to console us, to save us. He cannot heal what he has not taken on, what he has not assumed. But in taking our flesh, our God can heal us. Think for just a moment about the darkest corner of your heart, of your life. That thing that nobody else knows about, not even your spouse, not even your best friend. The thoughts, the things in the past, the things maybe in the present, the pride, the lust, the envy, the greed, the violence. Think about the place where all the ugly lives within you. Simeon holding a baby, 
means that God went there. He came down so low. He entered our darkness, conquered it. How far does your God go for you? He comes this far, entering his own creation, born in a stable, raised as a peasant, dies as a criminal for you to heal and forgive that darkest part that is within you. I behold the Lord's salvation. But that God took human flesh also means that you have, we have great dignity. We have great dignity. My favorite Christmas carol, I make us sing it uh, every Christmas Eve, is O Holy Night. And I love this line. I think this is the reason I love it. This line. This is O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Till he appeared and the soul felt his worth. Christianity and Christmas means you matter. You matter to God. You know, it feels good. It feels dignifying when somebody wants to be like you. When somebody wants to be like you. I have an eight-year-old son. He's like a mini-me. He loves his daddy. He wants to be like me. Whatever I love, he loves and cares about it. I love basketball. Basketball is his favorite sport. I'm from Texas. He's hardly been to Texas, but he loves Texas. (laughs) I follow the Bears. He watches with me every week. It feels good. i got to be honest. He wants to be like me, at least now. (laughs) But friends, this is the story in reverse because God has become small. At some level, it is proper to say God wanted to be like you. And so he became a baby. He dignifies us by becoming like us, becoming one of us. Have you ever felt small? Have you ever felt unimportant? Have you ever felt ashamed? Remember, God became a human just like you. He thinks you're worth it. He thinks you're worth it. Maybe this is for you. Maybe this is for somebody you know who's having a tough time, they're down on themselves. They're down on themselves. You can look them in the eye and say, Merry Christmas. God became like you. God became like you. So the second kernel that Simeon gives us is that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus. Salvation has come. But the third kernel is that because of Christmas... Because of Christmas, you can face anything. You can face anything. You see, the song of praise to God is not that all that Simeon sings. He also addresses Jesus' parents. Let me read verses 33. And and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They're marveling what Simeon says. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your soul, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon is saying that Christmas, that Jesus will expose people's hearts. It will reveal your hearts. And he says quite clearly that some, and upon uh, dealing with Jesus, they will fall. I mean, some people, when they face Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, they view it as an outrage. They want to believe that they can stand on their own merits. And they detest Jesus for what he says about their heart and their darkness. And they will fall. But others will face Jesus and be rise and, and rise and be able to face anything. 
be able to face anything. Simeon's heart is revealed and it rises. And he is such a great example. Now, Simeon was an old man and it says he was waiting to die. And the most gripping thing that he says to me is in verse 29. He says, now you are letting your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. Translation, I have seen Jesus. I am ready to die now. Now I can die. It's as if Simeon looks into the face of Jesus and he no longer needs to fear death. In fact, he's able to give himself over to death because in seeing Jesus, death has been vanquished and he can die in peace. You see, what Christmas means is that because of Jesus, you can face anything, suffering, sorrow, hurt, even death itself. You can face anything because of Christmas. I don't know that I can commend it to you because the uh, language is actually quite foul, um, but there was a great series, I'll call it a great series on Netflix this past year, uh, called Quarterback. Uh, called Quarterback, and it was a uh, documentary, I don't know what they call it, but it basically it was about three NFL quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes, Marcus Mariota, Oregon in the house, uh, and, um, and Kirk Cousins, these three NFL quarterbacks. And I, actually, the way they all three talk, I, all three of them might very well be Christians, but the, the story that was most moving to me was the story of Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins was and may still be again uh, the Vikings quarterback. And last year, the, the Minnesota Vikings had their best season ever. Their best season ever. They had 13 wins. The Vikings never win 13 games, okay? Uh, they've never won a Super Bowl. They had 13 wins. And so that means in the NFL, if you're not an NFL fan, that means you host the first round of the playoff game. And they host the game versus the Giants, Okay? Now, Kirk Cousins, by this point in last season, he's 34 years old. They have home field advantage in the playoffs. This is his best chance to win a Super Bowl. Okay? They're at home. They lose to the Giants. They lose to the Giants. And by the way, uh, three, four or five games into the season this year, he tore his Achilles heel. Kirk Cousins may be done playing football forever. So this is a year ago, and he knows it. He's at the end of his career. Is he ever going to win? Biggest career loss, he says actually after the game to the media, he says it's the biggest loss of all my years in the NFL. But he has to go home. He's just a dude. He goes home, right? And that night, I can't believe they gave him access, but that night, Kirk Cousins is in his house, and it shows him after the, his greatest professional disappointment, it shows him reading to his kids, doing a totally normal dad thing, after the biggest loss of his life. But then they have this beautiful scene, and the camera begins to pan out. It shows the house in the snow with Christmas lights, and Kirk Cousins is singing to his son. Netflix did this. Oh, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Then he prays, in Jesus' name, amen, end of episode. You see... When you understand Jesus, you can face anything as trivial as a professional loss, as great as the loss of a spouse, as some great tragedy. What Christmas means is that we can face anything because the hopes and years of all the years are met in Jesus tonight. And we have hope. Simeon faced death. Kirk Cousins faced disappointment. What are you waiting for? What are you facing today? Simeon has shucked some corn for us, and he has shown us these kernels. And I want to leave you with this one. 
that because of Christmas, you can face anything. Your God came near in the person of Jesus and took on flesh. Would you again this Christmas grasp hold of him? That, friends, is the recipe for a merry, merry Christmas. Let me pray. God, we thank you for Simeon. We thank you for Anna. These faithful saints of yours who waited for you, who looked for you, and had the good sense by your spirit to see that in Jesus and in his birth, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in him tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.